is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans about their very first job. And today's story comes from our own Alex Cortez, about the life story of a guy he once met in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he went to college, and I went to law school at Mr. Jefferson School, the University of Virginia. By the way, a place where you can't quote Jefferson anymore, because it violates safe space rules and ordinances. And, of course, this gentleman's very first job played. Derwood Chase is a guy who knows how to work. He doesn't go on vacations. No time. He's building up his investment business. For 17 years, you remember, I worked 70 hours a week, and I brought my own lunch, so I'm here. You know, I'm not at lunch um, having fun with some client or prospect or something. I didn't know any better. I mean, I just wasn't very sociable, I guess. So Claude Jessup, who I'd, you know, I'd send him a sales letter or two or three, and and finally he calls me up. said, I've got a research project I think you might be interested in. Let's go to lunch. Well, I'm sitting here with this, my lunchbox, and I said, well... Gee, um, I already brought my sandwiches. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I guess, I don't know. I don't think the guy was a billionaire, but let's say he was worth $100 million. And I'm telling him we can't go to lunch because I have my lunch, my sandwiches. That is so goddamn stupid. I can't even <laughs> believe it. But he was local, you know, and he dealt with bus drivers and so on and so forth. And he said, oh, well, Bring your sandwiches down here, and I'll send out for lunch. We can have lunch here right here in my office. And you don't run into that sort of businessman in, in New York, etc. Durwood eventually learned that he couldn't let a sandwich get in the way of getting a new client. But what to do about the sandwich in those cases? My wife thought if I was not going to eat my sandwiches that I ought to sell them to somebody, sell my lunch to somebody. This is my first wife, by the way. <laughs> but some of the people were going out, you know, getting a sandwich somewhere. And so I just remember saying, well, listen, I'm, I've been invited out to lunch or something rather. Um, go ahead and eat, eat my lunch. And uh, if you think it was worth anything, just, just put the coins in the box so I can give, give them to Marion when I get home. But, uh, you know, when you're first struggling and losing money with your first three clients or something or other <laughs> while you're trying to make ends meet. And where did Derwood learn to be thrifty and work hard? Like many folks, it was his very first job, working on a farm, his dad's farm. You know, whatever jobs there were on the farm, that's just, uh, just a gopher. I think in terms of the work ethic, I got that in spades. You know, my father had that idiom, you know, like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, but that didn't keep him from raising me on an all work and no play track. (laughs) Derwood's father paid him one dollar for a whole day, and he said it was more than Derwood deserved. A dollar a day was big money. But the dollar was, you know, you could get a steak dinner for, I, I don't remember getting a steak dinner anywhere, but I think 
I think I heard people talking about getting a steak dinner for 25 cents or something, rather. And more than anything, working for his dad on the farm gave Durwood this. I had a lot of uh, dialogue with my father while I'm painting one side of the fence and he's painting the other. And sometimes I'm just handing him the tools when he was fixing the car or something rather, you know. But that, you know, was really a great relationship, even though it was work-related. Then, like all good things, it came to an end. I got into a nest of yellow jackets, and they are really mean when they sting you. After that, I told my father I was going to try to go to town and find a job. Durwood went to the nearby University of Virginia, my alma mater. Now at the big school, he asked his dad for a bigger allowance. When I went in to talk to my dad about an allowance, he said, well, son, if you get the tiniest part-time job, you'll be making much more money than I'm willing to give you as an allowance. So I'm discontinuing entirely. And that was really very helpful in terms of my part-time jobs in, in college. Necessity's the mother of invention, and I don't think I would have been anywhere near as open to working. He at first worked for free at the student newspaper, the Cavalier Daily, until... I was on the sports staff, and then because I just happened to be in the booth next to these guys that I had just seen in the Cavalier Daily office, and they had were talking about the checks that they'd gotten, and I overheard them, so I, I got up and asked them, uh, weren't you just the Cavalier Daily office? Yeah. Well, what, what is this about the checks? Oh, we're on the advertising staff, and they're paying you 10% commission on, on the ads that you bring in. And so I finished my walnut Sunday. I switched to hot fudge Sunday since then, by the way. But anyhow, I went right in and resigned from the sports staff and joined the advertising staff. Durwood would earn $3,000 in advertising commissions in a single year. That's over $27,000 today for part-time work while he was a student. It makes it seem easy, and getting some accounts were easy. But there were others like that Greek tavern owner who were not. I can remember sitting and waiting for damn near an hour. It taught him patience. Patience he'd need growing his investment firm. Can you imagine having a one-room office and having a retired person who'd been president and chairman of Emerson Electric come in? I don't know how I even talked him into coming down and even considering our services, but I could just see that guy looking from one corner of the ceiling to the other corner of the ceiling and thinking to himself, if this is all it is, this guy couldn't possibly be competent. (laughs) Thurwood Chase now manages more than $500 million for a select group of investors, only in America. Great job, Alex. Great story. Thurwood Chase, first jobs. This is Our American Story, and we love these jobs. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Post yours. This is Our American Stories. And this next one 
is one of our favorites. It's one of the quintessential American stories. Yet chances are, many of you have never even heard of this man's name. He had over 250 kills in World War II. He is America's most decorated soldier, having received every award, citation, and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs, which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this 5'5", 110-pound baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today which is astonishing considering just 50-plus years ago, he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I asked him, Who is Audie Murphy? It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought. And at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star at a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity, and they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. I mean, a hero is someone who, for a small amount of time, embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble, you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart, because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, He would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here, in this one person, you have extreme heroism and extreme celebrity. And it's just trying to mix. 
and his story is a story of how we've confused them today. In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength, celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audi was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction. Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925, and he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, and um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children all together. And as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby, so she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy more interested in in gambling and having a good time. And the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun, and it had eight bullets in it. And Audie went hunting, came back with four rabbits and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was. Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy. He got a little old 22, I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on a run. Well, that's how we, that's how we lived, Dad. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels and rabbits. And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then. Here again is Dr. Smith. One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings in a profound way. Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar. When he was 13 years old, his father left the family, and he never came back. So now... Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of of a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West. Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date at a movie theater. 
And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of, of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to, to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old, plus he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognized that he's too young. Uh, he tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that, that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he, he doesn't join. So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry. And what a story so far. I'd been a fan of the movie, but just didn't know. Just didn't know the circumstances, my goodness. Losing a father and a mother, and then having kids orphaned, living out of a boxcar. And when we come back, more from these great historians, more on this remarkable life, the life of Audie Murphy, here on Our American Stories. And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a couple of hundred hours now on this Days in Histories, on just pure stories, and particularly soldiers' stories. Art Dick Winter's story from Band of Brothers, his life. You'll hear from him from the grave. When we come back, more on the life of Audie Murphy. This is Our American Stories. American Stories. We're listening to Wiley J. Smith's Ballad of Audie Murphy. And if you've never seen the movie, To Hell and Back, it comes on TV all the time. Don't skip it. It's terrific. And it should be a remake. His life story should be a remake. 
So everybody today knows who he is. But let's go back to the story, back to Audie Murphy's life. The Army Infantry was the most accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he, he was impressively tough from the very beginning. And he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And the, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision. Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them. The first time he goes into combat with the 3rd Division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter and Audie Murphy, I don't know if I want to say envies him for this, but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he, you know, he doesn't have much in the way of family. And he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says, you know, you're going to get back to see her, you're going to get back to her, you're going to be a great father. And then, you know, they come ashore in France together in August of 44. And they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they, they get one German foxhole to surrender to them. And they, they wave a white flag. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. And, and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. And he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes. And then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes. And he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is and, and he, he cries over him. It's just a, a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying, the other being the death of his mother. Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor and the respect and love of the United States of America. 
The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime. There's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading a couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and, and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those tank destroyers are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across the snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio and he's calling in artillery from the rear. And he's telling you know where to drop the artillery rounds and he was always very good at this, which serves him very well. And he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has, they will go straight to the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And then he realizes that over to his right, the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank and he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke. And it masks his position. It gives him cover. It's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. And he thought that the Germans had no idea where he was because they couldn't see him, number one, and they wouldn't even believe that somebody would be fool enough to be up on top of a burning tank shooting at them. Later he said, I remember being up on there and the thought I had was, this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. And there's that story, and I think it's true, that you know he's up on this tank with his right hand on the gun, with his left hand holding the radio to his ear, yelling for artillery support. And across the radio comes the question, how close are they to your position? And his response is, if you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them. It gets to the point where the shells coming in are kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they, they begin to pull back. And, and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing. And he climbs down off this tank and he's shaking. And he walks over to a tree and he leans against the tree and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And, and the people who watched this, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories, the final segment of this remarkable life, this remarkable man. Hey, 
Though he was badly wounded, all he never left his gun. He killed 240 men and made the Germans run. And when the fight was over, the men all gathered round to shake the hand of the Texas man that backed the Germans down. sent for him when he heard what he had done gave him the highest honor our country has to give he said you didn't fight in vain as long as freedom lives shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we Shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow since she said she'd never forgive. The house that we built was once filled with laughter. But I changed that laughter to tears And now I live in a world without sunshine Oh, how I wish you were here And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Dean Martin singing an original composition written by none other than Audie Murphy. Then let's return to the story of the most decorated soldier ever in American history. If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you. And what you might hear is not what you'd think. A little, a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy. And Audie says to him, you know, don't be afraid to be scared. There's going to be times when you're scared to death. And then Audie tells this kid, I'm always scared when I'm at the front. And it's, it's, the irony is that everybody else in the division says, when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front, the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry, and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like Patton style, for people who can't take it and who break under combat to somebody who understands intimately how, how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody. With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's He's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed, and he's always going to say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think, this guy's just a kid. Well, he, he sort of is. Thanks to Life magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life magazine in the 1940s. 
there's nothing today, and, and I think about this sometimes, I, I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life magazine was like that. But it's this cover. And it shows him looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school. And, of course, he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed you know, 250 soldiers. This guy was shot repeatedly. This guy was 50% disabled, according to the U.S. Army. And, and this guy's carrying around, already carrying around some, some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night. But there he is on the cover of Life magazine, looking like a Norman Rockwell figure come to life. One of Hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie Murphy on the cover of Life magazine and picked up the phone. Here again is Joanne Mattern. There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off, so he ended up sleeping in a gym that a friend of his owned and kind of bounced around a little bit. But then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back. And that was all about his experiences in the war. To Hell and Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie. And they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by, by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who, who had fought and who had died and kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. It was actually Universal Studios' highest earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. Although Audie's high point was very public, Audie's low point was more private. But while this, all this was going on off screen, Audie, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle, but during the 50s and the 60s, that term didn't exist yet, and people weren't really aware of it. So Audie actually, in the 60s, he started to speak out about how he felt that, you know, he had trouble sleeping. Every time he heard a loud noise, he would jump. He slept with a gun under his pillow. When he went out in public, when he was driving down the road, he was constantly looking for danger, you know, looking for something to jump out at him. And he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. He never really did get over it, but he tried to help others through his experiences. Here's Audie's friend, film director Bud Bedeker on Audie's struggle with PTSD. He called me one day. 
And he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45. The picture's in good shape. Don't worry about a thing. I'm going to blow my brains out. And I had two seconds. And I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States. Go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a bitch, and he hung up. Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different. In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane, and the plane crashed, and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly. It's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone, and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief. Doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave. is the most popular, and Audie's number two. American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen Beck. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning, and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said in that familiar Texas voice, If I had, you think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for as a citizen, a soldier, and a hero. Tom Brokaw. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 confirmed kills. One man. Humble beginnings. Humble in birth. And humble in death. If you've never been to Arlington, by the way, Arlington National Cemetery, you must go. You must take the family. As solemn, as beautiful a place as you'll ever see amidst this busy city, there's just this space. And boy, no one talks, no one laughs, and no one's goofing off. You watch kids put the phones away. You watch human beings just respect, respect the sacrifices made. And there is Audie Murphy's gravestone. I've seen it. I've been in front of it. And it's just, it's nothing. I mean, it's just like everyone else's. And it was a remarkable thing to not have that special lettering there. Many Medal of Honor winners choose it. And Murphy just didn't want to be different than the rest of the guys. And, well, he's received every award, every citation, including the Medal of Honor, all before, again, he turned 20 years old. The baby. 
He looked 14, they said over and over again. Remember also that he wrote 17 songs. Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagoner, Jimmy Dean, Charlie Pride. And we're going to bump out with this Jerry Wallace cover of Audie Murphy's When the Wind Blows in Chicago. This is Lee Habib, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Story. Oh, why won't it let me forget? is our American stories and college can be a great step for many young men and women across this country but it isn't all sunshine and rainbows it just isn't for everybody tuition keeps going up and up at a time when families have less and less discretionary income to spend and it's not even certain that taking on all this debt to get a college degree will help young people land a job some fields are flooded with new grads and there's no obvious way to figure out who will actually work out as a new hire? But what if there was another way? Today, we're talking about apprenticeships and how they can be an alternative to not just college, but professional degrees. To learn more, we talked with an eager young entrepreneur who launched an apprenticeship program. I am Isaac Morehouse. I'm the CEO of a company called Praxis, which is a one-year apprenticeship program. And our mission is to help young people discover and do what makes them come alive. That's kind of our mission statement. But what does that look like in practicality? We take young people who are eager to get started on their careers, whether or not they have any college. Most of our participants don't go to college. And they go through an intensive six-month professional boot camp, learning how to create value in the real world, specifically in a startup environment. And then the next six months, we place them in a paid apprenticeship at a startup where they're working and learning on the job. And our belief is that you learn most by doing, and the sooner that we can get young people into the workplace to experience what matters in the market and get them out of classrooms and engaging with the world, the better. And so that's what the program is all about. We have a 98% placement rate. That means our grads get hired after the program. Um, and most of them are 19, 20, no college degree. Now, what type of teens or young adults should consider this program? So the kind of people that are attracted to practice are typically kind of restless, entrepreneurial. You know, they, they can succeed in a classroom setting if they want to, if they put their mind to it. But they're, they're, they're kind of eager to get out of the classroom and actually engage with the world. And most of the time they look around and they see that four years in college and, you know, five, six figures in debt does very little to prepare people to succeed in the workforce. They've got to learn on the job anyway. They're having a hard time getting jobs with degrees. And so people look around and say, I want to, I want to get experience now. I want to know what's going to be valuable. And we can kind of bridge that gap. Most young people have a hard time, whether again, whether they've been to college or not, knowing what's valuable and knowing how to create, you know, value for a company right now. And with the, the boot camp, we kind of prepare you and get you ready to do that. And then the apprenticeship is a great lower risk, lower cost way to both the employer and the, the participant 
to get to have basically a, a road test, a test drive, and to, to be exposed to things, to do some work in a lower-risk environment, and basically prove your ability to come on full-time. So it, it's people who are kind of tired of sitting through classes for you know, 15, 20 years straight and coming out with debt and a degree and still no clue what they're good at, no clue what is valued by companies and really no clue how to get a job and, and build a career. And so we're kind of letting people speed that process up dramatically. I love the part about the low risk, because what we're risking is time and capital. And by the way, we've talked to some folks from the Harvard Business School, the Clayton Christensen Institute, and Clayton is one of the great, great thinkers about education. And we're spending so much of our capital in the ages 18 to 22 when we know we're going to be lifelong learners in the 21st century. And yet, boom, you're done with high school and you just got to send them off to that freight train. You got to go to college. Again, college is for plenty of people, but just as many people, it's just probably not the right fit and certainly not the right time. That's the bigger point. Now, this program, by the way, we love this guy and we're going to be following this guy. This is just something that's close to our hearts here in our American stories, this kind of story. This program isn't for everyone. Practice is a tough program. It's a big challenge. The kind of challenge it presents, though, it's not, it's not that we need people who, have, who are born with some sort of special talent that few have. It's really stuff that anybody can if they want it bad enough. It's work ethic and hustle. I call it the sleep-in-your-car test. If, if you're the type of person who's willing to sleep in your car to get what you want, that's the kind of person that it takes to succeed in this because it's very challenging. We often have people come in with, I call it the school of mindset, where they're kind of waiting to be given an assignment and waiting to be told exactly what to do so that they'll get a grade and know that they did the right thing. But it doesn't work like that in the world. You've got to come in with your own goals and desires. It's more like a fitness trainer. You have to come in and say, I'm willing to put in the work. I have these goals. And that's what this is all about in part. It's developing character, resilience, Grit, and we talk a lot about grit here on this show. As Isaac explains in this clip, the business world is wide open for kids with that kind of determination. The higher education costs are, have, have risen faster than any other industry in the country, and the returns are dropping. The number of people with degrees who are either unemployed or have jobs that don't require degrees is going up. It's, it's over 50%. And the, so a lot of people are looking around and saying there's got to be a better way. And the concept of apprenticeship has been around forever, and it never really went away in things like the skilled trade. You know, if you're going to weld or be a plumber or electrician, that's still the, the predominant way people learn, and I think that's right. Where it sort of vanished is in the world of business, in you know, any kind of marketing, sales, digital commerce, those things, there's nothing you gain in the classroom that really helps you in those arenas. And those are most of the jobs around today. And increasingly, freelance work, being sort of entrepreneurial, starting your own thing, doing you know, the gig economy, moving from gig to gig, those types of skills are, are kind of the opposite of what you get in a classroom setting. And so that's where Praxis is trying to fill a unique void, is offering apprenticeships for, we sort of call it like non-technical entry-level talent, things like marketing and sales, not so much coding or welding, um, but in those kind of people skills, soft skills types of, of arenas. And so we, we have grown tremendously since we launched, and I think the concept of apprenticeship for more than just the skilled trades is going to explode. And we do here on Our American Stories as well. 
And when we come back, we're going to talk to one family who did just that. We'll hear from a girl who actually took part in one of Isaac's apprenticeships. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. These are your stories, folks. You have kids. You're adults. Continuing education. What's it going to look like in the future? We think apprenticeships is a return to the past. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we're talking about apprenticeships as an alternative for college. We just talked to Isaac Morehouse, his story as CEO of the Praxis program. That's a business alternative for young adults. His program is very successful and led to many young adults and teens working in good-paying jobs. Well, we talked to the CEO. Now we want to hear from someone who's gone through the program, Olivia Von Warmer recently completed the year-long program and is now working for a Silicon Valley startup. She explains why this was such a natural path for her. I think I've always been kind of like that. I've always, whenever I'd wanted to learn how to do something, I'd pretty much just gotten a job doing it and just learned it that way. So I don't think it was really like a new idea for me by any means. So I think it just kind of made sense to me. And I wanted to use Praxis as kind of the stepping stone to get into a job that might be a little bit more complex or difficult to do so without a college degree. So it just seemed like the right next step. Olivia is currently an account executive in Silicon Valley and loves to talk about Praxis. For me at this point, looking back on my life, this is just such an obviously great decision. So many people that I talk to are so just like, man, I wish that I had thought of that. So I think before jumping into something like college, which is such a huge investment, why not get your feet wet doing something that you might want to do? See if that is the case. You can always do college down the road. I think that we have this idea in our culture that college, you have to do it when you're young. And that's so not true. And other cultures, they don't take that approach at all. So I'd say, why not do a much smaller investment, do something like Praxis and really get your feet wet. And then at that point, you can decide, okay, do I still need college to get me where I need to be? If that's the case, then perfect. You know, you have that option. Otherwise, you know, you have saved yourself a ton of money and a ton of time. You're probably going to be a lot farther along that road than you would have been if you had done college. She just sounds so happy and so smart. And it's so obvious. Why spend it now? Maybe later you'll you'll need to have the education. You'll actually have the money from the money you made working instead of assembling a mountain of debt. And you'll know exactly what you want from that education or at least have an idea. But apprenticeships aren't just for the trades or entry-level jobs. There are even apprenticeships for careers that ordinarily require seven years of college. In fact, in four states, one can become a lawyer without actually attending law school. Here's Janelle Orsi, one of the founders of a website dedicated to helping people become law apprentices. So likelincoln.org is a blog that my apprentices and coworkers and I created because about five years ago, we were the only organization that we knew of at the time uh, that was a legal organization 
helping people become lawyers without going to law school. And so in four different states, Washington, Virginia, Vermont, and California, you can become a lawyer by apprenticing with another attorney. And it's usually for about four years where you work in their office, you study the law. In California, you have to take an exam every month. Uh, you eventually pass the bar exam and you become a lawyer. And so I had founded an organization called the Sustainable Economies Law Center and brought together all of these great young people who were volunteering and interning with me and eventually working with me. But there was this sort of pesky idea that a lot of them kept coming up with, which was that they wanted to quit and go to grad school. And at some point, and we started doing it mainly because one of my coworkers, Christina, was had become so indispensable to the organization, we really wanted to keep her. And so I said, how would you consider this thing where you can become a lawyer without going to law school? And she did it, and eventually we attracted a few other people uh, who are doing it. And so we have four people. Janelle describes the process the apprentices go through as they work to become attorneys. In our case, all of the apprentices work with me and they work very closely with me. I have two apprentices, another lawyer in my office has two apprentices. But what it's like is in many ways like a conventional workplace, but as as their mentor, we create a much more didactic environment, I guess. So many of the things we do are focused on teaching and learning. We're also a nonprofit, and so one one part of our mission is educating the community as a whole, and that's convenient. And so we just have a constant environment of um, sitting down and talking through things together, critiquing things, and just trying to make it a really enriching environment. And so one example is we recently went to the law library all day, and we managed to get 29 other people to do this with us, which I... I thought was incredible. And we basically wrote legal documents together all day in a very party-like atmosphere and created documents that looked on, at the end of the day, a lot more like a science fair project. So groups would go around and um, hear presentations from others about the documents they had created. And so it was a very creative and educational activity, and it, it it inspires us to do things like that. So I really enjoyed being a mentor. Why did Janelle decide to create the website? What motivated her to push this program as an alternative to law school? After all, she went to a top 10 law school herself, University of California at Berkeley, a tough school to get into, and again, one of the premier law schools in this country. Why would she want to raise awareness of law apprenticeships? That's why we created the blog, likelincoln.org, was just realizing that there are so many people out there who are going to law school because they envision doing something in particular, maybe going back to their communities to provide legal services or doing public interest work. And then the debt that they acquire in law school just ties them down and really narrows their options. And many people don't return to their communities or do what they were envisioning doing. And even I, my my vision when I went to law school was to do public interest work, and that is ultimately what I've come out doing But if it weren't for certain assistance programs that I've been eligible for, my monthly loan payments would be about $1,400 per month, which is more than I'm paying for rent right now. And if I really did have to pay the full $1,400, I think I'd have to have a different different kind of job in order to make it work. Um, And so this is what's happening with a lot of people. And the great thing about apprenticeships is you're – 
usually, it doesn't necessarily have to happen in the context of a workplace. I mean, it's usually you're apprenticing in someone's office, uh, and you may or may not be getting paid to do work for them. But if you are, then chances are you're earning and saving money while becoming a lawyer rather than going into debt while becoming a lawyer. And by the way, Janelle told us that if she could do it all over again, she would skip law school. And again, she went to one of the top schools in the country, Cal Berkeley. And by the way, I, I would have skipped it again, too. I went to one of the top law schools in the country, the University of Virginia. And one of the things that Janelle left out of this conversation, she talked about the time and she talked about the money, but she didn't talk about the really crummy education she got there. Because what a lot of these law schools teach, frankly, is like ethereal stuff you can't use in practical application. At my law school, most of the teachers, most of my professors were publishing their opus, publishing their grand theory about some law that they would argue to the Supreme Court. Most of us don't go and argue to the Supreme Court. We're handling a local contract, a business dispute, and nothing. We weren't really taught how to draft a contract, not how to litigate. None of the practical things that mattered were taught at the University of Virginia School of Law. It's why I've never given to the school. The education was thoroughly impractical, and it was all about the professors and their standing, not about ours. This is happening more and more in our nation's colleges, and it's infuriating more and more of its customers. The students are not the focus, and their careers and their lives, and these apprenticeships are going to become real competition for the market, for the marketplace and in the marketplace. One other quick point. The name of her blog, Janelle's, is likelincoln.org. Abraham Lincoln, one of, the, one of the nation's greatest lawyers, read a book, a great book, called Lincoln's Greatest Case, and you'll find out just how good a lawyer he was. Lincoln never went to law school. He did the apprenticeship route, which everybody did back then, and he became one of the nation's finest lawyers and ultimately uh, served in the state legislature and then became president of the United States. And he was never minted with that 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 prestigious law degree that you need now in order to think about running for higher office or political office. So we're going to stick on this theme of apprenticeships and work replacing college. Again, college is for some people, but it's not for everyone. And here in Our American Stories, we're going to drill down there. We did Anthony Solis's story, if you remember. It was about a year ago, young kid who was drifting in, in high school, heading towards trouble, and he signs up for some welder program, heads off to a big shipyard. He meets men making things, bending things, burning things, falls in love with it. And when we last spoke to him, he was helping pay off his parents' home, and he was in his late teens, learning personal responsibility, thinking and become a father, him thinking of becoming a father himself, while others were partying at school and thinking about what they might do in their futures. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Janelle Orsi's story, Isaac Morehouse's story, here on Our American Stories.
In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to Lenora Skenazy, who's the author of the book and blog, Free Range Kids, and we love it. And she's a contributor to Reason.com, another site we adore. And her TV show, World's Worst Mom, airs on the Discovery Life channel. But before that, it's time for Jesse's World. Police in Nashville arrested a man after they caught him in bed with a stolen lingerie store mannequin. Let her go. She's real, I swear. An assistant manager at the Hustler Hollywood store said that she saw the suspect, 55-year-old Christopher Wade, flee with the mannequin just after midnight. The employee said that she argued with the suspect, who was intoxicated, but she could not stop him from tossing the skimpy model into his truck. Police said that the mannequin lost her left arm as Wade fled the scene and that the suspect did not retrieve the arm. The employee told police that the mannequin is worth upwards of $5,000, outfit not included. Wade was charged with theft of property. He's in love with a dummy. Police are searching for answers after a burned body was found outside of a Michaels store in Florida Monday morning. Just before 7 a.m., a 911 caller told police that a mannequin was on fire just behind the store. When the fire department arrived, they realized that the mannequin was actually the body of a dead human being. The body was still burning when the fire department arrived. Ohio police say they believe they stopped a man's plotted armed assault on police officers with armed mannequins. Video surveillance shows 51-year-old Timothy Ward posing with one of the mannequins. Police also have several videos that Ward posted online with the mannequins. Police received a tip earlier this month that he was planning to have armed mannequins injure officers and blow up a police station. As the FBI and local agencies began investigating Ward on Tuesday, they searched his home. The chief said agents confiscated several armed mannequins. Ward was arrested on two counts of retaliation and a weapons charge. Police say Ward was released from community supervision last year and that they learned he had recently stopped taking his medication. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I don't even want to ask where and how, Jesse, but good job, as always. And now we're going to Lenora Skenazy, and we love to talk about just about everything on this show, as you know, history, sports, love and death, and public policy periodically, but parenting and family, we really love to get into and dig into, and especially when we can hear from the moms, who are usually on the front lines of the parenting wars, and sometimes those wars are just fake. And we're fortunate that the chief warrior for common sense, Lenore Skenazy, joins us now. Lenore, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for that intro. Chief warrior for common sense, I I like. I like it, too. So tell us your personal story and your son's before we dig into the segment. All right. The reason you're talking to me today is because when my um, younger son was nine years old, he asked me and my husband uh, if we would take him someplace he had never been before and let him find his own way home on the subway. Uh, We live here in New York City. We decided yes. One sunny Sunday I took him to Bloomingdale's fancy schmancy department store in a fancy schmancy neighborhood and I said okay today's the day and I went one way and I left him to figure out the other way which was in the subway. The subway is right underneath Bloomingdale's. Uh, He had to take the subway down a couple of stops, get out and uh, catch a bus across town and when he came through the door of our apartment he was levitating because he was so proud that he had finally been allowed to do something on his own that he felt ready for and that we allowed him to do. And I wrote a column about it and um, ended up on, uh, I can't even remember, the Today Show 
CBS, what is it, Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR, two days later, uh, being described as America's worst mom. And oh. so that was it. That was the beginning of this uh, crusade, I guess, that has been going on now. He's, this, that son is 18, so it's been nine years. Well, congratulations, because, you know, when I was a kid, Lenore, I lived in Bergen County, New Jersey, about 10 miles straight as the crow flies from the George Washington Bridge. And on okay. Saturdays, we would tell our parents at the age of about 11 or 12 that about 10 or 12 of us were going to bike across the bridge, <laughs> go downtown, park our bikes, and tie them up around a Riverside Drive bike stand and go in and have a couple of hot dogs and wander around Central Park. And my parents said, have fun. That was it. They, they let you do that? Okay, because I was just, that reminded me, I'm looking for George Washington Bridge on my site now, which is Free Range Kids. And I'll read you about another guy who went over that bridge. Here it is. Okay, boy 10, bikes 20 miles into New York City. Um, this is a guy writing his little autobiography, and he wrote, um, he pedaled 20 miles down unfamiliar roads and busy streets past neighbors and strangers out into the unknown. I didn't need help from anyone. It took me all day, but I found the way, and I did it myself. He crossed over the George Washington Bridge. And he credits that with giving him the, I guess, the confidence and the sort of adventurous spirit that allowed him to go guess Where? Where? The moon. Yeah. Oh, just that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, just that. That's Buzz Aldrin's uh, autobiography, talking well, about taking his bike, going over the George Washington Bridge, and going into the city just like you. Well, uh, you haven't gone to the moon, have you? No, I haven't, but you know what? I've always been an adventurer. My parents courted it. They, in fact, insisted on it, and, and every all the parents did. None of them hung around us. They basically mm-hmm. said, go out. We'll see you in 12 hours, because we got a life. <laughs> We got a life. We got a life, and you have a life. And what's interesting about it is that they were allowed to do it. I mean, what has taken me over into the policy side of life these days is hearing from so many parents, almost on a daily basis it's become, uh, who are arrested or investigated for letting their kids have any unsupervised time. It's just, it's, it's not allowed, even though our crime rate today is is lower than when Buzz went to the moon. We're back to the crime rate of 1963, which was before color television, before the moon landing, when when gas was 29 cents a gallon. And when parents were allowed to put you and your friends on their bikes, not even put you on, obviously, just say goodbye, and let you have your adventures. And, And, of course, if something... Untoward happened. You guys had to figure out how to how to get out of it. If you had a uh, you know a flat tire or you got lost, they trusted you to rise to the occasion, and that's something that we're not allowed to trust our kids to do anymore, which is a huge insult to that entire generation. It really is, and, I'm, and thank you, Lenora, for setting the record straight, because I, I read this statistic in this poll the other day that people think New York City is more dangerous than ever, and yet simul- <laughs> simultaneously in 1980-something, I'm not sure if it was 84 or 85, there were 2,000 murders in that city, right, right, right. and this so past year there were like 320, making it right. one of the safest places to be in the world when you account that almost 10 million people live there. Yeah, thank you for saying that, because that's true. <laughs> it <laughs> is I true. Say is that people constantly believe that, you know, right, uh, what is it, Roper and Gallup do polls uh, all the time, and they ask people, is crime going up or down? And the majority of people always say that it's going up, and they've been wrong since 19... 19- 93 when it uh, started turning around and it's been coming down ever since. Well, I'm having a 24-hour news cycle that just will take any local crime 
and turn it into a national trend mm-hmm. uh, would allow almost any parent to just be terrified or mortified. To My answer, by the way, always, Lenore, is turn off your TV. Just turn it off. Just, yeah, turn on your radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen to this. So, Lenore, so that this happens, and you become the world's worst mom. Yeah. What was it like sitting on that set of the Today Show? I mean, did you feel, uh, in, did you know that's what they were going to have you on to discuss? Oh, I, was, I was quite surprised. It was my, obviously my first time on the Today Show. And uh, what I didn't realize that they would do is they asked, oh, could we have you on? I said, okay. And then could we have your son on? Sure, that sounds fun. And they said, and we're going to have somebody else there who might want to comment. I was like, okay. But I didn't realize that someone else would be a child psychologist. you got to always worry about them. Um, actually, I don't worry about them. I think there are plenty of wonderful child psychologists. Yep. This is a TV child psychologist. Right. Don't worry about them. And that she would be sitting on the couch with me. And once I explained what we'd done, and my kids said it was so fun, she said, well, there were safer ways you could have done the same thing, like following him without him knowing it or have him going with a bunch of friends. And uh. I'm like, Uh, That's not the same thing. That's not the same thing, you silly person. And when we come back, hold that thought, Lenore. We're talking to what I believe is one of the world's great moms, combating the world's worst mom tag by simply allowing her kids to do some things on their own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're talking to Lenora Skenazy, who's the author of a book and blog, Free Range Kids. I love that title. And a contributor to Reason.com, and her TV show, World's Worst Mom, airs on the Discovery Life channel, and we now know why she was called World's Worst Mom. And for so many of us listening, it sounds like it's backwards, of course, uh, that label. And, and we were talking about Lenora when we left off, just thought this whole idea of risk. In 2006, you, wrote, you said on NPR, 50 kids were abducted and killed in America. The whole country, 50, out of 75 million children. So in other words, Lenore, you're 40 times more likely to die in a car wreck, and yet parents won't leave their kids alone. Right. Well, it always interests me when people say, like, oh, I could never, I could never let my kid walk to school or play outside or you know, walk around the corner even because of the risk. And... I'm not saying that there's no risk. I'm saying that there's very, very little risk, and frankly, there's nothing that carries no risk. And uh, and yet some things we just see only through the lens of what terrible thing could happen, and, and that, that's, that's what we do when we let our kids have any unsupervised time. But as you just said, as I just said, <laughs> as you just said, that I just said, that <laughs> basically the most risky thing you can do with your child at all in America these days is to put them in the car and drive them anywhere. And we don't, you know, scream at parents who put their kids and drive them to the dentist's office. What are you doing? What do you think about it? How would you feel if your child is dead? You know, you would feel so bad. But we do that whenever any parent lets their kid you know, walk to school or play outside or go on an overnight. 
And it's because we've, all, we've decided that parents are in constant control, and if the parents are with a child all the time, nothing terrible can happen. And the instant that they are not supervising their kid and their kid has a little taste of independence, even walking two blocks to school, that that is foolhardy because what happens if something terrible goes on? Yeah, it's so true. We had on Greg Yip, who's the uh, economics editor for the Wall Street Journal, and we spent about 12 weeks with him because his book, Foolproof, and I think the subtitle is something like how safety makes us uh, less safe and how right, danger right, right. makes us safe. And it, it, it's, it's very counterintuitive, but he really talks about how, look, you know, if you don't allow your kid to take calculated chances and risks and calculated ones and the parents don't, how will this child be able to be out on his own in the world? How will he develop what I like to call an inoculation against life's ills? Talk about right. that. Um, what's interesting is, though, is even when we start talking about calculated risk, you hear the word risk and it sounds dangerous. You know, risk is inherent in all life. We, yep. we interpret risk as risky. Right. And when you do that, then it starts saying, like, well, maybe my kid is ready for risk. I, you never want to send your kid out into real risk. So I, I don't even like using that word. I think it's like, when can you let your kid have a life. And, and the way I try to present it in, in the, the lectures I give is I, I ask the audience to break into little groups of like just, you know, three or four people, whoever is sitting near you, and I'll, and I'll ask you to do this if there's anyone in the studio with you now. And, and think about, well, you actually told me this when we first got on, uh, you know, something that you did as a child that you absolutely loved doing that you don't let your own kids do. And once people start thinking that way, it's like, oh, my God, yes, I loved, I played in the forest, we made forts, or I went to my friend's house, we played outside, we, you know, we did manhunt at night with the streetlights on. You know, people remember all these things so fondly. It's, it is the foundation of who they are, that confident kid with the, you know, with, the, with the communication skills and the imagination to come up with a new game. And to take that away from our kids is to take away something something so precious. I mean, we're trying to give everything to our kids. We're trying to get them into a good school. We're trying to get them wonderful after-school activities. We're trying to make sure that they have, you know, a good vacation and some happy memories, and yet we're taking away the, the happiest memories from them by saying you can't have any time on your own. That's, that's something that hits people when they start thinking of it that way, when they start realizing, like, wait a minute, I want to give my kid everything. And then I say, and you can give that to your kid because for the same reason that your parents gave that freedom to you. It's not that your parents thought that there was no crime in the world or that nothing could ever go wrong. It's that they, they trusted you, they trusted their community, and um, they recognized the importance of showing, that, showing your kid, I believe in you, go out and play, not I don't think you can handle anything. I'm going to be right next to you all the time. Yeah, I think that's the big one. I think you said it best. I mean, it, 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 my parents conferred tremendous trust in me. And, and they were also saying independence is good. I mean, it's a virtue. And they didn't have to ever say those words because no, they live no, those it was, words. It was, it was so obvious. I mean, that's what's so weird. It's like, what calculated risk? Well, let's, you know, contrast that with the entrepreneurial spirit that we're imbuing in our children with a modicum of freedom. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like, kids, go out and play. And right. we all recognize that that was sort of the normal state of kids, that they'd have some chores and some school and then the rest of the time they had to fill. And there's these two fears that are stalking Americans. One is that you send your kid outside and they'll be, you know, kidnapped and murdered. And the other fear is that you send your kid outside and they're not going to get the scholarship in 
soccer because you yeah. haven't had them in five-day-a-week travel soccer, or they're not going to ace their AP U.S. history exam because you haven't had them in AP U.S. history exam extra classes. And what is ironic is that when I went to the TED Talks and I spoke to the people who were heads of all these fantastic corporations, everything from you know Amazon to Skype, and I asked them about their childhoods, and of course they remembered, oh, you know, we accidentally set my room on fire because yeah. we were making rockets, or I went around, uh, you know, gathering my friends, and we would always have a ball game. And they did not go to entrepreneur class. They went to play, and that was uh, their training. That's what all kids need is time on their own, figuring out what they're interested in, learning how to focus because they're so fascinated and they want to do they want to do that thing so much, and filling their time, figuring out who they are. Why would we take that away from kids? Yeah, life class, I almost like to call life it. Life class, yeah, and, good. And, and, you know, the structure <laughs> with throwing on kids, Lenore, is really, it's distressing. I mean, my, the parents I know all look exhausted because they're ferrying kids around from here to here. Mm-hmm. If they play mm-hmm. baseball, it's extreme baseball. They're playing all year long, mm-hmm. and they're traveling far and wide. Look, I love basketball. My dad gave me a ball, and we had bicycles. And we would leave Little Dumont, New Jersey, and we would get on our bicycles, and we would go to Englewood, and we would play guys from there. Mm-hmm. And then we would drive home. That was it. There were no leagues. There were no super I – mean, it was just you get to high school, you play against the other schools. That's it. Right. On the other hand, I do feel for kids and parents today because – It is hard to find a group of kids playing outside that then can play with another group of kids. So I'm trying to do a couple of things to sort of re-normalize kids outside playing with each other. And and one thing I did is I started something called freerangefriend.com where you go in, you put in your zip code, and you can find other people who also want to send their kids outside. I know that sounds a little calculated, but at least you have the same goal in mind, which is having your kids play outside. You don't care what they do. You just want them to go outside. So this is a way to find other kids in the neighborhood whose parents will let them go outside. And um, another thing I'm trying to do is get schools to start the Free Range Kids Project, which is the teachers tell the kids to go home, and ask their parents if they can do one thing or another that they feel they're ready to do that for one reason or another they haven't done yet, whether it's walk the dog, make dinner, get themselves to school, you know, pick up their brother from soccer. And because it's endorsed by the school and because it's a one-shot deal, usually the parents, even the parents who have been overprotective, say, okay, yeah, yeah, you can go to the store and get some bread for that project that you're going to get extra credit for. And once the kid leaves the house by themselves and comes back with the bread, which they will do, it changes the parent completely, way more than a discussion by you and me of, you know, whither the entrepreneurial spirit and what are the odds of getting killed by a stranger versus killed in a car crash. Seeing your kid walk through the door elated that you believed in him, that he got to run an errand, that he brought the bed that you're going to eat tonight, that's... That, that changes the parents. The parents are so proud that instead of saying, I'm not letting them do it, I'm too scared, they say, look what my kid can do. And, and so the Free Range Kids Project is simple, free, and transformative. Well, we love the idea. By the way, always be careful of what you ask your kids to ask you. Because my little one, I take her out to L.A. to meet, to visit my dad. And my dad and I always go to Vegas. And we've taught her how to card count and play blackjack. And so she wants to go to Vegas and play blackjack on her own. And I said, look, you got to wait till you're 18, sweetie. Uh, but, you know, keep practicing. Keep practicing. How old is she? 
<laughs> she's 11. <laughs> so, oh, boy, I think she'd take them by storm. Sounds uh, great. It is great. And, Lenore, thanks for doing this. And we got to make this a, a regular stop. Send us your material. Okay. Um, this is terrific. And, by the way, if we can do one thing and let the parents out there know, A, it's okay to be thinking what we're thinking, and then let's get together because maybe we can just – bring at least our own lives back to normal by meeting those parents who want to get our kids together and go off into the woods and play for a few hours. So maybe we could have a martini and talk, talk about adult things without our kids hovering around us every nanosecond. Now, this is Lee Habib, and we've had on Lenora Skenazy for the last two segments and hopefully many more times. And we're talking about kids, and we're talking about parents, and we're talking about independence and why, in some ways, this culture is not engendering it. More after these messages. 